It's a great privilege to be here with you all. You know, we here at Redeemer, we, we love the Reformation, and we love its heroes. Um, it was a 16th century movement that sought to reclaim the church back to Scripture. And one hero you may be familiar of is John Knox, who was mentored by John Calvin in the 1550s. John Knox was a leader of the Reformation in Scotland, and John Knox's reputation when he returned to his home country in Scotland after running from persecution, he came back in 1559, and his reputation was that of a man of whom God answered prayer. John Knox was constantly praying for the reformation of his people, and his prayers were so powerful, so effective, that the dedicated Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, is, have said, has, is once rumored to have said, the quote, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembly's armies of Europe. She had great reason to. As within eight years of John Knox's arrival in Scotland, she had to abdicate the throne, flee Scotland, and her son became a Presbyterian. Fearful prayers indeed. God has a great sense of humor. Powerful prayers change everything. And this is not just true of the Reformation heroes, but the church at large. So today we are going to continue our discussion on the conclusion to the book of James, chapter 5. And in doing so, we're following up on James's big above all section that we covered last week. And the question that follows is how are we able to live all that James was trying to explain in his letter to the church that is scattered across the diaspora? James' answer is in our scripture reading from James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. So turn, tap, swipe, and let's all stand as we read God's holy word. If you're using our pew Bibles, this is on page 1013, or it is printed in your bulletin. So let us read James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let us pray together. Father, you are the good and merciful King of heaven and earth. And so let this time now be set apart for your holy name, that you would be glorified, that your people would hear the gospel that Christ would be made great through the preaching of your word. Feed us. Let our minds be engaged, hearts convicted, and may we be a church of prayer, not for the sake of our own interests, but for your glory. Let the Spirit now speak words of power to our hungry souls. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
Yeah. Yeah. Is there a solution? <laughs> okay. I will project my voice. Louder for the people in the back. All right, here we go. All right, so here we go. Can you all hear me? All right, Tyler's giving me the, the, the head nod, so I think we're good. Oh, it doesn't matter. On or not, so I might as well just leave it on. Oh, there we go. Uh, thank you, Fred. Appreciate it. <laughs> God answers prayer. Um, so... As we've been reading throughout our time in the book of James, he wishes for the church scattered across the diaspora to be prepared for every circumstance, including the circumstances of now. And James' answer to the preparation for every circumstance is simple in today's text. The answer is prayer. And in these last couple of words to the church, we are going to look at just two things that James longs for the church to understand about prayer. Two things. One, the occasions for prayer, and two, what makes prayer effective. All right, so one, the occasions for prayer, and two, what makes prayer effective. So let's start first with the occasion of prayer, for prayer. Or, should I say in this text, the three occasions for prayer. James starts off this section of his letter by wishing to tie the simple principle that Christians know in, in their minds but often lack in practice. He longs for them to pray in every single circumstance, which is why it's in every single verse of our section here today. The word prayer is in every single verse. James is not being subtle. He's hammering his point home. Specifically, he calls for three occasions that highlight the range of human experience— this is not meant to be an exhaustive list of only praying in these three moments of life. This is meant to highlight the universality of prayer and the role of prayer in the discipline of the Christian. The power of prayer is to both work in the little things, to see God's immediate impact in the ordinary, like sound issues and, you know, other things like parking spots, but the faithful expectation of seeing how God will work in the seemingly impossible things. James 3, Occasions of Prayer, is asking us to consider the small the joyous, the seemingly mundane, but also the difficult and the impossible all at the same time. So let's dive into these three occasions together. The first occasion is when the Christian is suffering. The question that arises from our ears when we hear the exhortation to pray in times of suffering and trial is this question. Why should we? I mean, after all, if, if God is sovereign, if he's supreme, why would there any be need for us to pray during suffering in the first place? This is actually a great objection by atheists. The late atheist philosopher and head thinker of the new atheist, uh, Christopher Hitchens, put his objection to prayer this way. The man who prays is the one who thinks God arranged matters all wrong, but who also thinks that he can instruct God how to put them right. But the objection that Hitchens is making misses, misses the point of why we pray in the first place, and specifically what our text is telling us. Praying during suffering is not trying to tell sort of a bumbling God that he's messed up, nor does the lack of faith to pray when suffering arises as though your faith is weak and it's in need of correction. James here is being a good pastor and reminding them that God does not always promise the church the life that we think we deserve or the lifestyle that is convenient and with no trouble. 
The church in this moment of redemptive history isn't just a place of victory, but also a promised place where, where following Jesus means carrying our cross as his church, as his hands and feet. James is not naive about the trials we will face as the people of God, and neither should we be. No matter the pull of us to believe that all must be well for the church to succeed, Scripture gives us a reminder that it is not always going to be the case. And so we need to ready ourselves with prayer. This reminds us that the existence of suffering itself for the church is not a defeater for Christianity, nor a sign that Christianity has failed us. If anything, the existence of suffering and evil is greater proof that we long for a God of goodness in a broken and twisted world. And prayer is the way that we remind ourselves of, God who, of the God who is in control of our changing circumstances. Prayer is like the prayer of Job, who realized that in all his suffering was in God's hands and found relief in hearing from the Lord in his prayers. Prayers like the prayer of Paul, who prayed that the thorn in his flesh would be removed, but, but suffering continued to keep him humble and to demonstrate the power of God working in him. Prayer in the midst of suffering doesn't make the church or the Christian weak. Rather, prayer in suffering uses weak people to place their faith in a great God, a compassionate God who listens to us and gives us a living hope, a merciful God who doesn't look coldly on our sufferings, but rather sympathizes with us because he has felt every betrayal, every bodily harm, every longing, every desperation. And that's why the church prays in times of suffering. Suffering isn't the only occasion for prayer in the church. The second occasion is the great joy that we find a reason to praise God in our prayers. Churches, churches must remember that songs of lament are not the only songs in the Psalter. Christian hope is one that remembers to rejoice in the Lord always. James is giving here a slight rebuke that we often don't pause and think to ourselves what, what God's role has to do with our good circumstances. You know, you may pat yourself on the back on that accomplishment that you've earned. You may hear the acclaim of those around you and think to yourselves how awesome we all are. We may even slightly delude ourselves to think that God himself is in heaven looking at us going, well now, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, that's impressive. I had nothing to do with that. Great job. Obviously, that, that's not us. That's not our church. But you get the point. When things are going good, we forget God's goodness in it. We rob God of the true glory that he is due. And that's exactly why James is asking his people to sing praise as a way of prayer to God. Now, while the term prayer isn't specifically mentioned, scholars note that the prayer is implied, giving the breakdown of this section that James is in. That singing praises is an effective way to give thanks, to, to show gratitude, to give God glory. And in our prayers, this is an acceptable form of how we pray. In other words, a singing church is a praying church. And contrary to Presbyterian stereotypes, a cheerful singing church is a God-glorifying church. It's godly to be happy. And more so when we sing our prayers to the Lord to demonstrate our joy. You know, um, back in my youth ministry days at my father's church, uh, we used to drive youth students to these retreats up in Pennsylvania. 
because all the retreat centers are in Pennsylvania. And there was these large 15-passenger vans. And, and on these long road trips driving up there, when everyone was getting excited for the weekend ahead, what did a van full of adolescent teenage girls want to do together to pass the time? They wanted to sing songs from boy bands, right? Loudly. All right, so insert your generational boy band here. You know, the Beatles, New Kids on the Block, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, Jonas Brothers, One Direction, BTS, whatever, right? All right, you get the point, right? And there was so much joy in that moment. And where there's joy, even secular, temporary joy, people find a way to start bursting into song, don't they? It's not just adolescent teenage girls, isn't it? It's grown adult men in their 40s and 50s with respectable jobs and dignified companies singing at the top of their lungs at football games because some guy kicked a ball between two uprights. You know, but, but here's the thing about car rides and, and football games. Uh, you can't sing in a car ride forever before things start getting really irritating. You know, there's only so much mileage that I want it that way on repeat will give you before you really start thinking about jumping out of that vehicle. No matter how many football games you attend, it only takes one bad fumble, one painful loss to negate all that joy that you had for the previous two hours. Just ask the Atlanta Falcon fans about that Super Bowl. What about Christian joy? Let's take a look at what all the Christian hope offers us in terms of joy. What is the joy set before us? The elimination of Satan, sin, and its effects. No more tears. No more suffering. The eternal kingdom that all wars and violence and Facebook wall arguments will cease. The eternal communion with God who loved us so much that he brought us to fellowship with himself. The singing of billions and billions of people together rejoicing because our final hope is found. The great feast in the house of Zion realized, the place that is being prepared for us. The fact that Jesus himself inaugurating this kingdom by saying, behold, the kingdom of God is here. When we pray in singing, when we praise God in rejoicing and singing to his name, we are echoing the wonder that comes with the peace that passes all understanding. We praise the very God who gives us reason to celebrate and be joyous in the first place. So in our prayers, this is why we find reason to celebrate and sing praise. This is why the Psalms are a great place to couch many of your prayers. If you're struggling to find words in how to pray, pray the Psalms. It's a means to understand how both singing songs of lament and songs of joys bring God's words back to Him and refreshes our souls. The third occasion is like suffering, but it's now dealing with the very real effects of living in the flesh, and that's sickness itself. James here reminds us that prayer is not just a solo activity, but rather we need the church in our prayers. This is where the elders of the church, the one who God has appointed to be shepherds of the flock, are to come and lovingly shepherd the people. James asks that they use the symbol of the Lord's favor in Isaiah 61, and echoing the disciples being sent by Jesus in Mark 6 by using anointing oil and praying for them. It's here we're reminded that praying to God is great. And so praying to God together, oftentimes in great distress like sickness, is a time where the church can be the church to one another. This can also about, bring about a healing for those who are sick. And for those who are sick and do not know the Lord, 
Verse 15 in our text makes it clear that spiritual healing could also be in this person's future as well. So in arriving here at this moment, we need to move on from the three occasions of prayer and spend some time talking about our second point, which is what makes prayer effective? Because there's actually a controversy in this text of Scripture that we need to address. But, but I don't want the controversy to overshadow the real point of verses 15 and 16. Because I want you to feel the gravity of the text of what makes prayers effective. So, so let me first briefly address the controversy and then we'll get right back into it. Um, there are those that believe that verse 15 and 16 is a sacrament that Jesus has instituted for the church. Believing that those who are sick are talking about dying individuals who are in need of salvation and forgiveness of sins. So, so when James writes this, these, these dissenters would say, is that it isn't just a mere suggestion for how the church could pray. This is talking about a command for the elders of the church to always visit those who are dying or close to dying and to give out grace of possible healing by pouring blessed oil over the body parts of the affected individual. And by doing so, give definitive forgiveness of sins through the anointing of oil. They believe that the plain reading of this text supports this, but there are some several issues that I just want to quickly go through with that interpretation and why we, we hold, and the Reformation rightly wanted to move away from this practice. Uh, number one, Jesus never instituted the church to perform this, so we can't call this a sacrament. Jesus institutes the church to baptism, as we just saw, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26. So often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. The only hint that Jesus ever even wanted his disciples to do this is in Matthew 6, I'm sorry, Mark 6, anointing the sick from, uh, the sick from extraordinary apostles. Uh, but that isn't the same as the church being instituted to perform this act through ordinary elders. So we have to deny the idea that Jesus was advocating for or in support of this idea of extreme unction. Right? Not only that, but number two, James 5.14 simply just says the word sick. It doesn't say those who are mortally ill or the elderly who are about to pass away. So it would be strange to assume that this recommended way of prayer is creating caveats that are not present in the actual text of Scripture itself. Even the Catholic Cardinal Cajetan, who was the main opponent of Martin Luther, admits that this is actually a great problem for the Catholic Church in its interpretation of this verse. And number three, the word that James 5.14 uses here for anointing oil is strictly symbolic in use, not medicinal. And so no ritualistic act of pouring it all over certain body parts of the individual are not warranted from Scripture, but rather through fallible tradition. You know, although physical healing could be implied in the prayers, the oil in this case is non-consequential. In fact, some scholars believe that the oil was just simply mere olive oil. So for all of you from the Mediterranean region, you can say olive oil is biblical. And fourth, and this is the last thing I'll say before we move on, although we can go more into it. There, there are plenty of examples of healing in Scripture that don't require the use of oil. And we don't have any recorded passage in Scripture where someone prays to give salvation to another. So, in light of that, what, what do we make of this verse? James here is giving three examples of a greater principle that we are called to pray in every circumstance. He gives three examples of prayer, praise, pray with elders. An example of this principle in action 
here are some of the possible results that could come from them. This is why godly leaders of the church, like elders, pray for those who are sick and can symbolically use oil and pray for God's will to go forth in their potential healing. And who knows, maybe they might come to faith in Christ and trust in Him for salvation, and they are healed. But, but James here is not giving a have-to-do prescription for every situation in these three examples. There are plenty of examples of healing in the Old and New Testament that God works that do not contain any oil whatsoever or a group of elders praying over them. We cannot make a mountain out of this molehill. We must reject any attempt to bind the church's conscience to do so. So in other words, James here in these three examples of prayer is giving a matter of wisdom, not a sacrament that the church is bound to. And frankly, this all deflects from the real point that James is trying to make here. What makes prayer effective is not the display and pageantry that surrounds prayer, but what James is saying is pray because prayer works. Prayer is effectual in God's people. It's why we as a church love to pray together. Our service is filled with prayers because we want to know that prayer works. Prayer changes things. Prayer makes things real and tangible in ways that would have not come to be real and tangible had we not prayed for them. Prayer that is in tune with God's will, that is in tune with God's plan, that we ask for in faith, is granted to those whom God blesses in prayer. This is the Christian hope. Too often we rush through this hope because we rightly don't want to be making promises that the Bible doesn't teach about prayer. We, we are not health and wealth. We are not name it and claim it. We are not like prayer in a genie, prayer like an ATM, whatever analogy you want to use. God doesn't answer every prayer the way we ask for it because it's not according to his will and it's not according to true and holy desires. But it would be wrong of us to those who uphold God's sovereignty, to deny the power of prayer for those who pray. Because Scripture demonstrates for us over and over again, Old and New Testament, the promises of God to work effectually through the prayers of His people. Think about Hannah's prayer for a child. Think about Hezekiah's prayer that he would add 15 years to his life in the book of Isaiah. Think about Jonah's prayer in the belly of the whale. Think about Moses' prayer advocating for fallen Israel. Think about Jesus' promise in John 15, that if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask and it will be done for you. James here in our text is talking about the prayers and uses the example of Elijah, whose own prayers stopped the rain for three and a half years. Prayer works. And none of this is counterintuitive with the doctrine that God is in control. He works through our prayers, and he works through the cries of his people. Now, uh, this is not without some mystery on this side of heaven for the Christian how to understand how these two realities work together. The great reformer John Calvin in his commentary on verse 17 struggles to put this together and says, Elijah's prayers worked in some sense, to have God listen to him. And if Calvin is struggling how to put that together, then surely we all will. But maybe that uncertainty, that mystery, gives us the greatest reason to pray. We pray to align our will with God's in such a way that we find ourselves wrestling with our own humanity when we converse with the God of the universe. 
We lay down our requests to him. Not so that we will wait and see whether or not he'll answer, but we lay things down to him to see how awesome he is. That we delight in him and his ways. That we will find our hearts changed and transformed to ask for things that aren't just merely for our convenience or pleasure, but to ask for things to give God the greatest glory. That's what effective prayers are all about. They aren't about the strength of who you are or the strength of your faith, but a mustard seed that moves mountains because God is the great mountain mover. That's precisely why the text says that Elijah was a man just like us. Did you catch that in the text today? That Elijah was a man just like us. That seems like a very surprising phrase to those of us who are familiar with Elijah's story because there's many ways in which Elijah is completely unlike us. Elijah was a prophet who prayed that wouldn't rain for 3.5 years, and it happened. Elijah got fast-tracked to heaven through some sort of angelic Uber chariot service and skipped the whole death thing. But Elijah was a sinful man like you and me. Do you remember Elijah's story? He struggled and wrestled with doubt as one of God's prophets. He feared death, though he had no reason to. And others wished to take his own life. And like us, he had trusting, he had difficulty trusting in the promises of God. But he prayed. He trusted in a God who was bigger than his prayers, bigger than his circumstances, and trusted the call that God had placed on his life. You see, the effectual prayers of a righteous person in our text today isn't because that person became righteous on their own. It's because God in his mercy and grace and wonder sent Christ to make them righteous on his behalf. It's because Christ prayed the great high priestly prayer over us. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those whom you have given him. Our prayers are effectual, not because of the person we are, but because of the saving grace of the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus prays over you. prays over me. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. Because none of our prayers are effectual without his intercessory work on the cross. Without his imputed righteousness to go and give us access through the veil to a loving and gracious Father. It's only through the Spirit's work in us in the name of Jesus that our prayers have any righteousness to speak of at all. And because of this, and this is the good news, we can pray big things, church. We can pray big things. Think about the greatest revivals in church history and the greatest growth of the kingdom of God. They happened in places where God would seem to be impossible to work in. In political, cultural, and social situations where ordinarily it would have seemed impossible for churches, for pastors, and Christians, and the gospel to penetrate the darkness. But God listened to the prayers of his people, didn't he? He set in motion the Reformation through the daily two to three hour prayers of Martin Luther. He opened up Scotland through Knox being on his knees. He's now bringing faith in places once thought to be impenetrable, places like China, North Korea, Indonesia, Iraq, Afghanistan, through the intercession of faithful brothers and sisters who continue to pray without ceasing. In other words, the effects of the prayer of the righteous person 
in verse 16 has great power because the person is placing their trust not on their own righteousness, but faith in a righteous God that we can boldly approach who has been, is, and will forever be faithful to the church. So, I want us to leave us with a challenge to consider James's words here. This challenge comes from the great Reformed writer J.C. Ryle on his Tristie on Prayer, where he calls for the church to make a business out of prayer. Not a business like a corporation, but a business meaning the habit and formation of the Christian heart, the business of the heart. He says it better than I can. I'll close with this. Settle it down in your minds that prayer is one of the great things of every day. Do not drive it into a corner. Do not give it scraps and leaving and parting of your day. Whatever else you make a business of, make a business of prayer. So church, let's get to business. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice knowing that you hear us. We rejoice knowing that we have access to you. Lord, not just to demand things, but to have our hearts be aligned and attuned with your will and your ways for our life. Lord, may your church pray boldly for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your church pray boldly for us to receive our daily bread, to forgive our sins as we forgive the sins of those against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, we pray all of these things because you are a God who delights to answer the prayers of your people. You are the God who fills us with the righteousness of Christ. You are the God who gives us each day as a gift. And so, Lord, may your church be a praying people. We lift these things up to you in Christ's holy name. Amen.